Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tortoise. Hello, it's James. It's the week ending Friday, the 20th of October, a week of sadness and fear and anger, and perhaps even sometimes the odd wonder whether there's a hope for diplomacy and a question about how that might possibly work. We're lucky then here in the Tortoise newsroom that we're joined remotely by certainly one of the UK's most uh, well-regarded experts on the Middle East and by a former ambassador, also by happy coincidence, is the chairman of Tortoise. We're going to hear from Matthew Barson, from Lena Khatib and from Jess Winch, our news editor. Welcome to the news meeting. This horrific and deadly blast at a hospital in Gaza. Hundreds of people are thought to have died. Israel says it wasn't responsible, blaming a misfiring rocket from a Palestinian group. And based on what I've seen, it appears as though it was done by the other team, not, not you. But I caution this while you feel that rage. Don't be consumed by it. Food, water and medicine, but no fuel from Egypt to Gaza. Unfortunately, all Gaza is under attack. All Gaza is... Um, a place or a ground for complete bombing. Uh, ask the people out there, the people who have a heart, who do care, to find us a safe haven, or at least get a, get us out of Gaza. Jess, hello there. Hello. It's been a busy, confusing week for us trying to work out what a slow newsroom does when faced by a war and a very fast-changing story. Um, Lena, thank you so much for making the time to join us. I imagine that you are inundated right now with people trying to catch up with your life's work, in effect, understanding the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess this is headline news across media channels these days. And then Matthew Barson, very good to see you, both chairman and, of course, former US ambassador to London uh, and prior to that Stockholm. Thanks for being with us. Look forward to it. Let's get started. You know, often when we hold these news meetings, we're looking at competing stories in the news. Today, once again, we're trying to understand competing stories within the context of Israel-Palestine, the war with Hamas. And I'm interested to try and separate a few things out, to try and understand, if you like, the biggest news event of the week, which is um, the uh, deaths at the hospital in Gaza, at the Baptist Hospital, and how you go about the business of understanding what actually happened there. I think it would be really useful to try and get after the Biden-Blinken diplomacy. How much can you reasonably expect 
uh, the United States to be able to do in that context. And I think there's a picture on the ground, not just in terms of Israel, but in terms of Gaza and the Arab nations and what Gazans, Palestinians uh, can expect in terms of support, particularly Egypt, but not just Egypt. So I hope that gives you a sense of some of the things we want to talk about. Jess, do you want to start just by giving your read on what we know so far about what happened at the hospital in Gaza City? Yeah, sure. So we know that at around 7pm local time on October 17th, an explosion ripped through the car park in the Al-Hahli hospital in Gaza City, which is in the northern area of the Gaza Strip. We know that it killed possibly hundreds of people. Hamas, which controls Gaza, has blamed the blast on an Israeli airstrike. Health ministry in Gaza said 471 people have been killed and hundreds more injured. Israel has said it was caused by an errant rocket that was fired by another armed group, the Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and that group has denied it. We know that there were a lot of civilians taking shelter in the hospital, trying to seek refuge from the Israeli bombardment. We know that the hospital was also treating a large number of people who were there with their families. The hospital had previously been hit by rocket fire a couple of days early on October 14th. We know that other hospitals have been hit since the start of the bombardment. And and we know that all the hospitals in the Strip are overwhelmed and that the entire healthcare system is is already collapsing. A lot of the where we are now is really, I think, the we're at a point where there are lots of claims and counterclaims over who who is responsible. And we can go into what each side has said so far and what we know so far, but no one has come the, U.S. intelligence has said that based on preliminary evidence, they do not believe Israel was responsible for the attack. A lot of independent uh, open source investigators have, and a lot of newsrooms are very much still working on it and saying things like could not be independently verified, which is sort of the phrase you keep seeing. So I think the story matters as a moment to mark in this conflict because of how it demonstrates the difficulty establishing truth in war. But I think it's important for a few other reasons too. Um, whether the death toll is 200 or 500, if it is in that range, I think it is still the highest for a single incident in Gaza since this conflict began. And a John Hopkins public health professor who studied violence against medical facilities in war for many years has said that 200 would be, to his memory, the highest for a single incident involving a hospital in any conflict. So the the precautions that should have been there that are required by international law just to avoid or at least minimise harm to patients and hospitals just didn't seem to, weren't in place. And it shows as well the threats to Palestinian families in the Strip who, who don't seem to have anywhere safe to go. It seems to have set back diplomatic efforts to end the fighting, which I know we will talk about more. But we know that there's sort of a planned summit between the US President Joe Biden and the leaders of Jordan, Egypt and the Palestinian Authority was cancelled just sort of while he was travelling on his way there, I think. So public diplomacy around this suddenly seems to have become much harder. And it has deepened anger against Israel and I think against the US in Arab countries. We've seen major protests immediately, you know, the day after or that evening when the strike was announced from West Bank, Jordan, across Tunisia, and Western embassies already drew angry crowds as well. So I just think there's a lot that is involved in this particular moment that I think is really worth unpacking and talking about. Lena, one of the elements that you've written about, there's a piece that you wrote in the New Statesman I thought was really interesting about the role of Iran in all of this, and that is 
It's about trust and truth. People are very unclear about Iran's role in all of this. Right after the October the 7th um, attacks by Hamas, people very quickly reached for Iran as being the driver behind it. It felt like in the last 10 days, people have been questioning the extent of Iran's involvement. But your argument, if I read it right, Lena, was... Iran has real motive here. Without Hezbollah and Hamas, it has less of an influence in the region. But do you have real evidence of a link between Tehran and the Hamas leadership in Gaza and the terror attacks of uh, October the 7th? Um, in my in my article that you referred to, I never said that Iran ordered Hamas to do the attack or that Iran helped plan the attack. And this is what's being dis dis disputed now and discussed in the public domain. No one, I think, is disputing the connection between Iran and Hamas. What people are talking about is this particular Hamas operation and whether Iran played a direct role in that or not. Um, my reading of the situation is based on my years of research into Iran's regional role in the Middle East. And I know for a fact that Iran funds Hamas, Iran trains Hamas fighters, uh, Iran equips Hamas, uh, Iran coordinates with Hamas and Hezbollah regarding military affairs. They do joint uh, uh, sometimes operations. Uh, they share operational rooms sometimes. These things have been happening for years, uh, almost two decades, and they're not new. And in fact, Hamas originally, when it began, it was not uh, a creation of Iran. Iran came later. It only started arming Hamas around 2001, whereas Hamas uh, began in 1987. These kinds of military groups in Lebanon, uh, Hamas in the Palestinian context, uh, the popular mobilization units in Iraq, later the Houthis in Yemen. These are the tools that Iran primarily uses for its regional influence. So, of course, it's not going to just give up on these very important political cards. So can we take a few minutes then, if you like, just to park the bus and try and ask the question that's being asked of Tony Blinken, the Secretary of State, Joe Biden as the US president there this week, the British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak's visited, which is, is there a meaningful role for diplomacy? And where is the world trying to get to in this process? I, if I can, Matthew, I'm going to start with you, because it's a bit unfair, you know, being the ambassador in Sweden or the UK is a totally different job, isn't it, to shuttle diplomacy from the capitals of the Middle East. But can you start just a bit with the mindset of the State Department? How does it think about the role of the United States and the role of its own professionals in trying to bring peace in a situation like this? I think it's worth and and really looking at Tony Blinken, our Secretary of State, um, specifically and his style of diplomacy, um, as opposed to the State Department as a whole, or even to his boss, uh, President Biden, because he's been doing this for a long time. And I think his style is unique, and it is suited to the incredible set of challenges in front of us. The tricky thing is, in all these relationships, trust, you use that word, Lena used that word, trust is one of these things that you can't get by asking for it. I mean, you get, if you say, trust me, it's sort of like if I said, let's be friends, I've dramatically reduced the likelihood 
that I will be trusted. The same is true of respect. So it's a byproduct. <laughs> and I think diplomacy at its best, it, it's a we don't do hard, let's take US and the UK, something I do know well. We don't do hard things together because we're friends. We're friends because we do hard things together. And there is no short shortage of really hard work ahead, particularly around the humanitarian crisis and the work that Tony Blinken was trying to do, is trying to do over there. And can trust be built, rebuilt um, in that process? And you know him pretty well, Matthew. You say he's well suited to the nature of this crisis. Why? Well, I think he, um, on that first issue, I think the people of Israel and the wider Jewish community in the United States knows that he is, these aren't just words. I mean, this is just every fiber of his being. He uh, knows the stakes. He knows the, um, so he, he just knows that, you know, his stepfather was a Holocaust survivor. His grandparents, I think, escaped the pogroms in Russia. So this is very personal to him. He also has a style. I think um, I remember when he was deputy secretary of state, he came to number 10 to meet with Cameron, who was prime minister at the time. And there's a very set way that these diplomatic meetings go. You know, you're, Cameron sits in one chair and then the highest ranking U.S. person, in this case, Tony, was supposed to sit in the other chair. And then the junior staffers are sort of on the outer ring taking notes. And Tony gets into the thing. He sits in the wrong chair on purpose. He sort of like sits in the windowsill. Um, and that was strange. And then he does something even more unusual and I think wonderful is when it comes time for him to talk, he asks a question of the most junior person in the room who was just busy taking notes. And I forget the person's name. But hey, I know you're working on these issues all the time. This had to do with the civil war in Syria. Um, and so he asked this young person, staffer, what they thought and felt. And then the person started answering a little nervously at first and then gained confidence. And then Tony pulls out a notepad and starts taking notes about what the junior person who knows a lot about this is talking about. That is incredibly unusual. So um, I think that kind of... Um, and. Listening has been given sort of a bad word with, with politicians doing listening tours where they really want people to feel heard. They don't really want to listen. Tony is a real listener. Lena, what do you think about the take, stepping back from the personal to the big picture in terms of the region and the nature of U.S. power and influence post-Afghanistan, post-Iraq, in the light of um, the long war in Syria. What's the judgment these days when a U.S. Secretary of State comes calling? How much power and influence do you think does the U.S. have now? A lot of power and influence. Uh, so despite the cancellation of the meeting between President Biden and uh, Arab leaders, they know that ultimately the only way out of this conflict has to start with Washington. And so despite what many have written about and, and, and judged to be U.S. disengagement from the Middle East, ultimately the U.S. remains the main influential actor in this region and elsewhere. However, 
we also have to extend, unfortunately, the same judgment that the Arab world has regarding Israel, which I described as mistrust, sadly, also to the US. And this is because a lot of people around the Arab world have felt let down by the United States persistently for a number of reasons. Whether we're talking the US-led invasion of Iraq, whether we're talking President Obama's so-called red line um, in 2013 about the use of chemical weapons in Syria that did not really lead to the US delivering on Obama's uh, kind of promises at that time, or subsequent and consecutive administrations and the way they have handled the issue of Iran, whereby lots of focus has been given in the US in the last 15 years to the issue of nuclear enrichment in Iran. However, not a lot of attention has been has been given to uh, Iran's regional interventions, which have been destabilizing the region. And this is particularly felt by Gulf countries like Saudi Arabia and UAE, which, of course, are very close to Iran uh, geographically and, and obviously close to Yemen uh, even more geographically. And where, you know, Houthis who are now supported by Iran have been literally attacking them as part of Iran's uh, regional ambition strategy. All this leads, you know, all those Arab countries to kind of feel let down by the United States. And when it comes to the Palestine-Israel issue, of course, the Arab countries put on the table a proposed way forward called the Arab Peace Initiative, which Saudi Arabia led. And this was never really taken seriously, I would say, uh, in the United States. So you have, uh, you know, again, several issues, many different cases that Arab countries kind of can cite uh, to say we are not feeling heard. So for, for all the kind of, you know, diplomatic efforts that President Biden is doing now, there is this baggage that the U.S. carries in the Arab world as well. Isn't there also an odd thing going on, Matthew, which is that there's suspicion, as Lena talks about, of Washington by the Middle East, but there's also a kind of suspicion within the United States about government itself and this odd moment where Congress hasn't approved a whole bunch of ambassadors. Aren't I right? You know, Israel, Oman, a whole bunch of ambassadors in the region how much of a difference does that make? Or at these times, do ambassadors not really count as much as just the Secretary of State flying in, having those one-on-ones with regional heads of state or opposite numbers? No, I think it. I think it's a both-and scenario. It certainly would be more helpful if uh, if we had someone in those places and all these military promotions. I mean, tens and tens or hundreds of delayed military ones, all because of one senator. I think the last time I checked, it wasn't. It wasn't like there was unified Republican opposition in the Senate for that. Jess, what do you make of this then? The only other thing I think we haven't touched on that is worth watching, the diplomatic fallout from this or diplomatic response to this beyond the countries, the, the Arab neighbours that we have discussed. I think I want. it's interesting that there was a UN resolution on Wednesday to condemn the violence against civilians in the Israel-Hamas war and to urge humanitarian aid that had wide support across the UN Security Council and that was vetoed by the US and Russia and the UK abstained. So I think that's, I think that's an interesting 
element of this as well in terms of how countries in the West, China, else in Japan, Africa, South, you know, the, the other players in this are, are reacting to the, to the positions that the UK and the US are taking. All right, well, let's just take a pause there for a moment and come back and try and understand where the diplomacy might take us. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. I just want to go back to this U.S. diplomatic effort because, of course, there's a whole other element to this story that we're not covering because, frankly, we don't have the expertise and we're not there in Gaza or on the ground in Israel, either understanding the full nature of the humanitarian catastrophe that seems to be unfolding in Gaza or the military uh, action that seems to be about to happen. So let's not comment on things that we can't see or sensibly judge. But Lena, I'm really interested and in particularly because I'm talking to both you and Matthew – what would happen if Joe Biden and Tony Blinken call you into the West Wing and say, Lena, we've got a really complicated situation in that neighborhood. We need to find a few pivotal friends who are going to help us bring some kind of longer term settlement um, to bear here. Who would you advise them to go and see? Who are going to be the people on the Palestinian side of this argument that they might be able to work best with? Okay. Um, well, the first thing they should do before doing anything else is have a ceasefire in place and at the same time activate this diplomatic process that you're talking about. When it comes to who on the Palestinian side, definitely the Palestinian Authority, because that's the legitimately recognized uh, representative of the Palestinian people. Now, I would propose to the Palestinian Authority forming an emergency war government, a bit like what Netanyahu did in, in Israel, which would be a kind of unity government. Simply because right now the position of the president of the Palestinian Authority, Mahmoud Abbas, is seen widely by many Palestinians as weak. And uh, the Palestinian Authority itself is divided. So if 
the Palestinian Authority creates an emergency war government, then you're still keeping President Abbas in position as president. That's not being undermined. But you're also finding a way to have more representation and which would strengthen the position of the Palestinian Authority. Then I would say to um, the, 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 you know, the Biden and Blinken side, take this seriously as a partner in peace. Because this entity, the Palestinian Authority, had sadly not been taken seriously enough uh, in Washington. And then bring on board Saudi Arabia, because it is the initiator of the Arab Peace Initiative. Uh, Bring on board UAE. Uh, Bring on board Qatar, because this is the interlocutor with Hamas. And one way or another, Hamas is not going to vanish just because all this diplomatic effort is happening. So you need to find ways to kind of contain that uh, aspect as well. Uh, Egypt, of course, very important. And Jordan, these are the traditional uh, Arab stakeholders that have always uh, been part of this uh, Palestine-Israel issue. But crucially, I would add, on top of everything else, develop a comprehensive strategy regarding Iran's regional role in the Middle East. Because the file that is now uh, the hottest file, which is the Palestine-Israel conflict, is now intimately connected to the role of Iran in the Middle East. And, And you can't solve one without the other. Lena, just before I turn to Matthew and Jess, just so I understand it right, your Palestinian emergency war government led by President Mahmoud Abbas does not have Hamas in it? Of course not. Of course not. The idea is to empower the Palestinian authorities so that it would extend its control over Gaza. And basically, Hamas would be relegated to a group that, you know, you could, uh, through indirect channels, find find ways to contain using uh, Qatar as uh, perhaps uh, the first interlocutor. I had a follow-up question for Lena, if I could. Um, I'm, if we back to that, the hypothetical of you meeting with Tony Blinken and President Biden, sharing your deep knowledge, um, what would you say, if you think back and you shared your earlier just some frustrations with the United States historically in this area, what would you say if they said, well, what is a chronic misunderstanding we Americans seem to have about what's going on? How would you answer that? Yeah. I mean, the way I see it, Washington has been selective uh, in its approach to the Middle East. Uh, It has been focusing on other issues in the world, other files, uh, China, uh, the Ukraine issue. The Middle East has not really been uh, a priority because Over and over again, the Middle East only becomes a priority when massive violence breaks out in this region. Uh, The rest of the time, uh, the Middle East is relegated to, you know, a a kind of a footnote uh, very often. And I always say, ignore this region at your peril. And uh, whenever, you know, there is this selective assumption that uh, things in the Middle East are under control, something happens in the region that drags the world's attention back. Um, so this is something that I would caution the U.S. not to not to keep doing. You know, do not turn your attention away, thinking issues go away just because you're choosing not to look. I would for for all of you in particular, when is it we're doing a different um, format of the news meeting here, given what's going on? Um, 
And I'm just wondering when you as journalists decide when is the time to sort of go back to normal or when is the time, and this touches on Lena's point, when is the time to turn the attention back or to other areas beside this? That seems like a really tricky one. Jess? I think that's, yeah, we were talking about this, we've been talking about this this week, haven't we, about what point do you start to look at the, all the stories that you're missing. I feel terrible in that I know thousands of people have died in Afghanistan in a series of earthquakes and we have barely talked about it. We have barely mentioned it in, in our coverage and I haven't seen it much anywhere else. And I know there's a lot more stories like that that just aren't getting seen. But it's hard to drag attention away from Israel and Gaza at the moment. Uh, and there's always that dynamic, Matthew, which you hear a lot. People say, look, I just can't bear the news. I'm switching off. But you can't, I think look away from something that is as serious as this because you want you know your audience to have a better time you've got to trust mm. people to be able to go out and look at the sky and look at the trees and listen to music and find friendship and love and realize that news is going to do something else it's going to show you what's really happening so i, I rather take the view you've got to stick with it um i think the odd thing though and I'll say this by way of thanks to you, Lena, and uh, and and you, Matthew and Chess, in just pulling this meeting together, is I found there are strange things that this whole thing makes you think that are about much more than what's hot happening on the ground and news. So I found, for example, that in myself, I'm much more alive to history than I realised, and that there are words that mean something to me and put me in touch with history and that I then respond to because there is trauma moral memory in the bloodstream and it's made me think much more deeply about how I need to listen to other people who have trauma and memory in their bloodstreams and that's carried in words that I don't necessarily appreciate. You know, when you were talking just earlier on, Matthew, about, you know, trust not being something you ask for, but earned as a byproduct. I thought to myself, that's such an interesting thing that you take and you don't need to be a US Secretary of State to try and figure out how to make that work in your life. And likewise, you know, Lena, I haven't actually heard someone set out a plan for being constructive within the confines of Israel-Palestine, within the neighborhood, within the broader historic argument. And actually, just listening to that made me think, oh, yes, what that's really about is empowering people. You've got to see and respect the power that others have, particularly when they've got less power than you do. It, so, so it's funny, isn't it? I think there's something, even in this, in this set of news stories, what you take away from them are quite human, um, even when you're t looking at something that makes you close to despair. Um, anyway, that's not a hierarchy of news, but it is a response to it. Uh, with, with that, Jess, thank you for joining today. And thanks particularly for setting out what we do and don't know uh, around uh, the hospital attack. It's such a key issue and it's really been helpful to do that. So thank you, Jess. Lena, thank you so much for your time. It, you know, I feel as though that, the, the, as I said, that framework you offered us really is massively helpful. Um, and Matthew, thank you for telling us some things that we might otherwise, frankly, never have known uh, about um, 
about Tony Blinken and possibly a tip too to ask the person in the room who knows what they're really talking about. Maybe he's got some, maybe Tony Blinken's got a lesson for all of us. Um, thank you most of all for listening. Um, by the way, if you've got views on this or you've got angles or if you've got things that you think we need to address or people we need to hear from, please do just email us newsmeeting at tortoisemedia.com. Basha Cummings is going to be here in the editor's chair on Monday. Have a very good weekend. And nearly two weeks on now from 10-7, Israel's 9-11, we're going to leave you with the sound of Joe Biden, the US president, just offering a note of caution on the lessons America learned after 9-11. You can't look at what has happened here to your mothers, your fathers, your grandparents, sons, daughters, children, even babies, and not scream out for justice. Justice must be done. But I caution this while you feel that rage. Don't be consumed by it. After 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. Tortoise. 